You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, on December 10th uh, of last year, um, uh, I got a new nephew. Uh, my, my sister and her husband had been fostering a little boy since he was uh, 10 days uh, old, uh, and, and shortly after he turned 16 months old, uh, they were notified by the state of North Carolina uh, that this little boy who had been living in, as part of their family, living in their home, uh, was now uh, officially uh, their son. Uh, they gave him the name John Alfred Ashward, Ashworth V. Doesn't that sound regal? Obviously, my brother-in-law is John Alfred Ashworth uh, IV. Uh, but in, in, what happened was in just a, just a moment of time, uh, little John uh, got a couple of things. Uh, he got a forever family and he got a new name. He got his father's name. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Uh, we were out in North Carolina for Christmas and uh, just to be with the family and we got to meet this sweet little addition to our, our family uh, for the first time, and he is so cute, he's so huggable, uh, he's never stops moving, he's always into things, uh, which convinced me that I am no longer physically able to parent a toddler. Uh, but I enjoyed watching him, and I would sit and watch him play, and I would sit and watch the family uh, love on him, and I, and I would always think, you know what, this is amazing. Like, he will never know any different than this, but his life has taken a new turn hasn't it? Simply because he's part of a new family. He's an Ashworth now. And that will forever alter the way he lives. What he believes, what he values, what he does, what he doesn't do. It's true of every family. Like who we are shapes the way we live. And that's John's main point today. John the Apostle, not John Alfred Ashworth. Um, John the, John the Apostle is trying to tell us that who we are shapes the way that we live. Uh, John, as we've looked at this letter, we, we've said that he's writing this letter to Christians uh, to give Christians assurance about their faith in Jesus. Like, how, how, how can I be sure that I belong to God, that I'm part of his family? How can I be confident that, that I'm a Christian? And John says one of the surest ways you can know, one of the surest indicators is the way you live. Look at Verse 29, there in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 29. Right, really the second part of that verse. It says, you may be sure, so we can know this, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So you, we can be sure of this, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, sequentially, being born precedes practicing righteousness, right? You got to be alive before you live a certain way. And so it's probably more helpful to read this verse in the different order. So you could read it. You may be sure that everyone who has been born of him practices righteousness. So birth in a family comes before lifestyle, right? Right? Identity shapes behavior. Who we are shapes the way that we live. And John is going to develop that thought by answering three questions. Uh, number one, who are we? Like, if who we are shapes the way we live, then who are we? Uh, number two, what will we be? 
Right? He's going to skip ahead to the future and, and ask, what's our destiny? What will we be? And then in light of the answer to those two questions, uh, how should we live? Like, what should our lifestyle be? All right, so let's look at those three questions. Uh, the first question is, who are we? And, and, and he, he develops it in, in verse one of chapter three. Look at, look at 1 John 3, verse one. Who are we? He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, this verse actually is uh, much more dramatic than it reads in English. Uh, John, I think, actually here bursts into praise. I think he bursts into amazement at, at the love of God. Because when he says, see what kind of love the Father has for us, he means behold it. He means like stop and stare at it. Don't just glance at it, behold it because it's something to behold. And when he says, see what kind of love the father has for us, uh, that that, that phrase, what kind of, uh, it it literally means what country is this from? Like, where is this from? Where in the world is this from? We've never seen anything like this. It's the same word that the disciples of Jesus used in, in, in Mark chapter 8, uh, uh, verse, or Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, uh, when Jesus calmed the storm. Remember, Jesus rebuked the waves, he rebuked the wind, and the, and the, and the storm stopped. Uh, and it says the disciples were amazed. And they said, what kind of man is this? Like, that, that even the winds and the, and, the, and the seas obey him. Like, what country is he from? We've never seen anything like him. He's otherworldly. So that phrase, what kind of, is is an expression of amazement. And so John is telling us here, hey, look, behold, like stop and stare at the otherworldly love of God because it's been lavished upon us. It's been given to us. Why? That we could be called children of God. And we're not just called children of God. We are children of God. It it says that. Do you see that there in verse one? It says, and so we are are. That's who we are. Not just in name only, that's our identity. That's who we are, children of God. And it was God's love, his amazing love, his otherworldly love that made that possible, that that did everything necessary to make us his children. Now, I was pondering this week, what does that kind of love look like in practice? Uh, And I started thinking about my sister and her husband, uh, and, and, and the kind of love that they showed to bring little John uh, into their family, to make him uh, their son. Uh, and, and I think their love is just a reflection of God's otherworldly love. And, and so a year and a half ago, um, they got a call from Child Protective Services uh, asking if it was okay to bring a newborn to their house to live with them. And they had four hours uh, to make the decision. And they were like, you know what? We're ready. And so they opened their doors, they opened their, their hearts, and they said, he is welcome here. And that's love. They, they went from a lifestyle of sleeping all night long to immediately getting up several times in the night to feed this little guy. That's love. They changed all of his diapers. And listen, if you have ever wiped another person's rear end, you know that's love, right? That's love. They taught him to walk, right? They put up with tantrums. They took the heat when he bit another kid at church, which, you know, no big deal. We've all wanted to do that at some point. But they took the heat for it. 
That's love. Behold, what kind of love does it take to make someone your child? It's amazing love. And that's what God did for us, but God actually did more than that for us because in verse verse 29 of chapter two, did you see what it said? It says we've been born of him. We've been born of him. What does that mean? Well, John 1.13 tells us that it means that we were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man. We were born of God. John 3 tells us that means we were born again, born anew, born from above, born of his spirit. And that new birth came when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. To be born of God means that God regenerated us. Right? He, he rebirthed us. He gave us new life. He put his life in us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, which we'll look at in a minute. It's pretty graphic. It says, if you are born of God, God's seed abides in you. Uh, that word seed is the Greek word sperma. That's a little uncomfortable, I think. Now, obviously, not literally God's sperm, but what is it saying? That God put his life in us. That the, the DNA of God, if you're a Christian, is in you. You're a child of God. That's your identity. That's who we are. So now we can go to the God who made everything and we can call him Father. We can call him Father. And we can hear him say, I love you. You belong to me. You're my child. That's who we are. But what about the future? What will we be? And John turns to that question next in in verse two. Look at verse two. What will we be? Chapter three, verse two. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. That's who we are. But what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children now, but apparently uh, what we will, will be uh, has not yet been made known. We, we have full status uh, as children now, uh, but we don't have full maturity. Uh, we're still in process. We're still being transformed. We're, we're not complete yet. And he says what we will be has not yet appeared. That word appeared just means revealed. Uh, and so, so John is actually being uh, uh, showing some humility here. He, he, he's actually confessing some ignorance about what we will be. He, and he's not gonna speculate about the details, about what we will be in the future. He's only going to share with us what's been revealed to him, right? It's a little apostolic humility to only share what God has shown him. Uh, N.T. Wright says that any language about the future is like a signpost pointing into a fog or pointing into a mist. It's pointing in the right direction, but the details of what are going to happen down the road sometimes are a little bit hazy, We don't know yet all the details of what we will be, but we do know a few things, and John's going to tell them to us here in the second part of verse 2. Look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. What do we know? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What do we know? When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So three things we know. We do know that he will appear. It says when he appears, not if he appears. So this is going to happen. He will appear. Uh, and again, that phrase appears, it, it's, it's, it, it just means to be revealed. 
And so the image that John wants us to catch here is not that Jesus is coming on some kind of long journey to get here, long, far off journey from heaven to get here. It's more like the image of the curtain being pulled back to reveal what's really true, right? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like right here. The king is near. All that needs to happen is for him to appear, for him to be revealed, and that will happen. And when he does appear, if you skip ahead to the last part of the verse, John says, we will see him. Like, we're going to see him with our eyes. As he is, John says. Like, right now. Not as he was in the days of his earthly ministry when John and the disciples saw him walking around Galilee. He was a humble carpenter. Not as we see him now. How do we see him now? Through eyes of faith. We see him in the word of God. We see him in the sacraments. We see him in the people of God, his church. But on that day, And in the future, we will see him with our eyes. We will see him as he is in all his heavenly glory. And when we do, John says, we will be like him. That's the third thing you see here in verse 2. We shall be like him. What a promise that is. That we will be like Jesus in every way. We will be like him physically. Philippians 3 says that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So my nagging lower back that is always aching will no longer be a problem. Why? Because Jesus got no back problems. And I'll be like him. And we'll be like him emotionally. So my insecurities, my anxieties that sometimes paralyze me will flee away. Why? Because Jesus got no insecurities or anxieties. And we'll be like him. And most importantly to our text today, we will be like him ethically. We will be like him morally. And so my struggle with sin that is sometimes so frustrating uh, will be gone. Why? Because Jesus has no struggle with sin and we'll be like him. This is our destiny. Like To be like Jesus is our destiny. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Why? In order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. So our destiny is to be like Jesus, our big brother. It's amazing. In light of that, look at what John says in verse 3. Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in him like this, purifies himself now as he is pure. In other words, the hope of what we will be like in the future should shape our lifestyle now. If we're gonna be pure like him someday, we might as well start being pure now, right? There should should be a continuity between who we are becoming and our lifestyle now, the way that we live now, which brings us to John's main point for today. And that is who we are shapes the way we live, right? John established it. Who who are we? We're God's children. What, what, What will we be in the future? will be like Jesus, who is, who is the Son of God. And so in light of those two things, how should we live now? What should our lifestyle be now? The short, let me give you the short answer, and then I'll show you how John develops this. The short answer is that we should practice righteousness, not sin. We should practice righteousness, not sin. Because practicing sin is incompatible with who we are. In Christ, right? To be a child of God and to practice sin, that's like oil and water. They they don't go together. 
Uh, number one, because of what sin is, the nature of sin. And number two, because of where sin comes from, the origin of sin. And John is going to make both of those arguments in verses 4 through 10. He does it in two sections. The first part of the argument takes place in verses 4 through 7. And then the second part takes place in, in verses 8 through 10. They're actually parallel, they, parallel arguments. They have the same pattern, the same structure. I got this from John Stott. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. It's great the way John rolls this out. So in, in, in verses 4 through 7, he argues from the nature of sin. And, and he basically says practicing sin is incompatible with being a child of God because of what sin is. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so John gives the nature of sin here. He tells us what sin is. He says sin is lawlessness. Now that word lawlessness is not really a description of actions. It's a description of attitude. If he had said sin is law-breaking, he would have been talking about actions. But lawlessness is an attitude that leads to the actions of law-breaking, right? So, so lawlessness is an attitude uh, that, that says the law doesn't apply to me. Like I, I, there, I'm, I'm my own authority. I don't, I don't have, the, law, the lawlessness chafes against the idea that there's any authority over me that uh, that I must submit to in any way. L- lawlessness hates the very idea of that. Like lawlessness is a, is a rejection of God's authority. It, it is a rebellion against God's rule. It's shaking one's fist at God and saying, "I'll do what I want to do. I'm my own God." And so sin, according to what John is saying, is not a minor thing. Right? It, it's a really big deal. How do we know it's a big deal? Because of what happens next. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin because he was the sinless one. And so the Son of God came to take away sins. Now, if sin was no big deal, why would the Son of God come to take sin away? Why would he waste all that time and effort to be born as a human being? Right, to live a sinless life in opposition to sin and then to die a, a horrible death on the cross to atone for sin. Why would he even bother to do that? To take sin away. John is saying here that Jesus was opposed to sin in, in the way he lived his life, sinlessly, and in the purpose of his death. He died to take away sin. Sin is an awful thing. How do we know? Because something awful had to happen to take it away. The Son of God had to be crucified. So John now in verse 6 gives the logical conclusion of his argument. So sin is lawlessness and Jesus came to take sin away. What's the logical conclusion of that? Look at verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known Jesus. So if Jesus is sinless and Jesus came to take away sin, then no one who's joined to Jesus would keep on sinning, like would keep on having an attitude of lawlessness, of rejecting and rebelling against the authority of God. Jesus and sin are incompatible. Like Jesus is eternally 
opposed to sin. And then verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as Jesus is righteous. How do you know someone is righteous? They practice righteousness. Like, how do you know someone is in Christ, the righteous one? They live like Jesus lives, righteously. Who you are shapes the way you live. Now, Let's look at verses 8 through 10 because John now is going to give the second part of his argument and it's parallel, it's the same pattern and he's going to argue from the origin of sin and he's going to say, you know what? It's incompatible to be a child of God and practice sin because of where sin is from, because of the origin of sin. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so John gives the origin of sin here, and the origin of sin is the devil himself. He, he, he brought sin into the world way back at the beginning, and he's been sinning ever since. The, the devil is the original lawless one, right? The, the original rebel against God. Uh, the, the original one to say, God, you don't have authority over me. I reject your authority. That's the source of sin. Now, John says another word about Jesus here. Look at the second part. Verse 8. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So apparently, Jesus not only came to take away sins, which we saw in verse 5, but he also came to destroy the work of the devil. What's the work of the devil? Anything that's opposed to the work of God, like leading people into sin, leading people into error causing people to do anything that brings about guilt and shame in their life, you know, ruining people's life by getting them addicted to sin or convincing them that sin is no big deal. Those are the works of the devil and Jesus opposes all those things. Jesus died and rose again to overcome the work of the devil. And so now we come to the logical conclusion of this part of the argument. Where's sin from? It's from the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. So what's the logical conclusion? Verse 9, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So if you and I have been born of God, meaning the life of God is in us, the spirit of God is in us, his, his DNA is in us, we've been born from above, we're a child of God, then we can't go on sinning. We can't go on in a practice of sin. We can't go on making a practice of lawlessness, of rebellion against God, of shaking our fist at God and saying, no, I reject your authority. We can't do it. Why? Because that's what the devil does. And God is in us and God cannot reject God. God does not reject God. He doesn't rebel against himself and we're his child. That's the argument that John is making. And he closes with verse 10. By this, it is evident, it is obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How do you know who your daddy is? You look like him. You look like him. I mean, bless the little heart of my youngest daughter, Sophie. She looks like me. 
She is the teenage girl with braces version of me, right? She looks like me. It's obvious whose child she is. That's what John is saying here. He's saying what you are, uh, who you are, shapes the way you live. If you're a child of the devil, you'll look like him. You'll practice sin. If you're a child of God, you'll look like him. You'll practice righteousness. Who you are shapes the way you live. Now, I want to end by just giving two thoughts of, of application here. Um, like, what can we take away uh, from all this? Uh, here's the first thought. If you are a child of God um, through faith in Jesus Christ, you now have a different relationship with sin than you did before. You have a different relationship with sin. What I mean is sin is no longer uh, your master. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer calls the shots uh, in your life because your father is not the devil. Your father is God, right? Uh, one of the questions that gets asked a lot of times about this section uh, of 1 John is, is John saying that it's impossible for me to sin if I'm a Christian? And does, if that's true, does it mean if I sin, am I not a Christian? Is that what John is saying? And no, that's not what John is saying. Uh, he's already established in chapter one that we do sin, that we will sin. And so he's not telling us today that it's impossible for a Christian to sin. He's saying that it's incompatible with being a child of God to go on in a practice of sin and a practice of lawlessness. A child of God will not go on shaking his fist at God or her fist at God and saying, I reject your authority. Instead, a child of God will have a, I think, a soft-hearted view of sin. Uh, I think a child of God will have a serious view of sin. They will call sin what it is uh, and take it seriously in their life. They won't try to minimize it, they won't be like, ah, you know what, it's no big deal. Nobody saw, nobody knows, it's no big deal. They won't, they won't minimize it. They also won't rationalize it. Like, ah, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, that must have just been my personality coming out. I probably did that to you because I'm a nine wing eight, you know, and that's, you know, the way we relate to people. Apparently that is what I am. I'm not sure what it means. A child of God doesn't minimize sin, doesn't rationalize sin. I did this because you provoked me. A child of God has a soft-hearted, repentant view of sin. Quick to confess sin. God, I did do that. That was me. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me by the blood of Jesus? Will you change me? See, we have a different relationship with sin now that we're a child of God. Instead of practicing it, we repent of it. And we can repent of it. It's good news. Second application. If you're a child of God uh, through faith in Jesus, you can practice righteousness. You can. In fact, you will. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2 one more time. Verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So practicing righteousness uh, in our actual lives is one of the surest signs that we've been born of God. A lifestyle of righteousness is one of the surest evidences that, of our new birth, right? It's not the cause of our new birth, but it's evidence of our new birth. The, the, that's the beauty of the gospel. See, God doesn't say, live righteously, then you can be a child of God. He says, you're a child of God, 
Now you can live righteously. It's wonderful news. Who you are shapes the way you live. How do we do it? How do we practice righteousness? Look at verse 28 of chapter two, our first verse. This is how we do it. And now little children abide in him. Abide in him, remain in him. Like stay connected to Jesus by faith and draw deeply from his life within you. He is the righteous one, which means he's producing righteousness in you, which will come out of you. Abide in him. One of the main ways that we abide in Jesus is through the ordinary means of grace that he has given to us. Like the normal, ordinary ways that God has given to us to experience his grace. And the communion meal is actually one of those means. Uh, communion is, is an intimate meal. It's actually a tangible weekly reminder that we are God's children and that he loves us. How did he make us his children? Jesus came to take away our sin. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, as he had a meal with his friends, his disciples, He took bread, and after giving thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood poured out for you, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, The way that we become children of God is that the Son of God gave his life away. He came to take away our sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil so that we could be sons and daughters of God, and call God Father. Let's thank him for this. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.